series uh, this Advent season entitled Rejoice, a Savior is Born, and uh, we have been walking through uh, the birth narratives uh, of the opening chapter of Luke, and uh, we come this morning uh, to Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 80. Uh, now, for those of you who are uh, members here and have been here for years, uh, you might begin getting a little worried about how long this sermon is going to be uh, with all of these verses. Um, but uh, what we're going to do is touch upon uh, the opening part and focus in on the latter part of this, this section. Uh, but we come to another reason why we should be rejoicing and why the angels rejoice and why Elizabeth uh, and Zechariah rejoice and why Mary rejoice and why all these people are rejoicing in these opening chapters of Luke, we want to join that chorus. We want to join that rejoicing as we understand what it is that God has done for sinners, what He has done uh, for us in His Son. So please, if you would, stand with me, if you're able, for the reading of God's Word in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 57. <clears throat> now, the the, now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by that name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called, and he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, God of Israel, for he has visited us, excuse me, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this portion of your gospel account. And Lord, as this was written for Theophilus, 
in order to convince this, what we believe is a Roman officer of some sort that's contemplating the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know it's not just for him, but for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us and show us Christ as we hear your word proclaimed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, here, of course, we learn in the opening verses about the birth and circumcision and naming of John the Baptist. Uh, This is just as the angel Gabriel had foretold, as we looked at uh, earlier uh, on a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Zechariah, the priest's elderly wife, Elizabeth, did indeed conceive and bear a son, as was promised by angel Gabriel in the temple to Zechariah. On the eighth day, when they circumcised the child, uh, placing upon him the sign and the seal of the covenant of grace, Elizabeth announced their child's name. Now, John was the firstborn, of course. And so the firstborn would not only receive a blessing, which we'll see in a minute, but also would receive the name of his father. And so Elizabeth announced their child's name, but it was not, again, a family name. Everybody was expecting that this child would be named Zechariah. No, this name was a name that God himself had given to the child, the name that was announced to Zechariah again by the angel. And so in a dramatic moment in this text, everyone looked to Zechariah for confirmation of the child's name. Now, if you're not familiar with this story, you're probably thinking, well, why did they you know, give him this etch-a-sketch from under the Christmas tree early to, 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 to write out the name? Why did they give him this writing tablet? Well, because he questioned the angel when the angel said this was going to happen. And Zechariah said, how is this going to happen? We're old. We're all, we're all shriveled up. It's not going to work. And the angel responded by saying, I am angel Gabriel. <laughs> I have come from heaven to give you this message. And here you are not believing what I'm saying to you. And so he was struck dumb. And it had been uh, a year since he had been dumb, not speaking, that is. Uh, And so, uh, full of faith, Zechariah took a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. Then suddenly, suddenly the powers of his speech were supernaturally restored. And what does he begin doing? Notice there in the text, what does he begin doing as soon as his powers of speech are restored? Does he start complaining That was way too long, Lord. A whole year not being able to speak. No, he begins to praise God. He begins to praise God. And if I can just take a moment to say this, that when the discipline of God comes into our lives, whether it is through his providential discipline or through it's the discipline of the church, a response of true repentance is one of praise. It's one of praise and exaltation uh, of God and to God. And so here Zechariah has been under a kind of discipline for his expression of doubt, calling into question the words of angel Gabriel. And the first thing he does when he's removed from this discipline is give praise 
to God, not excuses, not grumbling, not complaining, not questioning, but giving praise. And so the powers of his speech were supernaturally restored, and, and immediately he gives praise to God. Luke then informs us in verse 65 that these events struck fear and awe into everyone's hearts. And word of these things got around. They got around. They were the conversation in the, in the beauty salons and the coffee shops. And people were talking about this. Did you hear about what happened? And all over the Judean hillside, people were talking about it. What then will this child be, they asked. For it was evident, it was readily evident that the hand of the Lord was with Zechariah. Then Luke tells us that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he began to give praise to God in a hymn of blessing. Now, like Mary's Magnificat, this Benedictus, as it has uh, traditionally been, been called, uh, we don't know if it was spontaneous. It likely wasn't. In fact, Zechariah had an entire, you know, Mary had her travel to see Elizabeth for, for a time, and she could have written it then. Um, and then we have Zechariah, who had an entire year, who could have been contemplating all these things that he wanted to say once the powers of speech were restored. We don't know. But we know that his powers of speech were supernaturally restored. And what does he do? First, he begins blessing and praising God and saying true things about God and his faithfulness. And then he blesses his eight-day-old son, John. And so this hymn of blessing, this benedictus, as it were, uh, has historically, as it's been historically called, which is simply the first Latin word in the Latin text, which translates blessed, this blessing is a blessing uh, unto God, uh, for God's work, and a blessing of his firstborn son. And so, again, Zechariah spends the first part of his blessing focusing on the sovereign, saving, promise-keeping visitation of God to redeem his people. Now look with me at verses 68 and following again. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, of all of those who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. And so here in these verses, this Holy Spirit-filled priest and prophet, really, is, is blessing God for remembering his covenant promises by sending his son. Notice what he calls his son. He calls him the horn of salvation. What does a horn communicate on an animal? It communicates strength. It communicates power. Christ is the horn of salvation. He's also the seed of Abraham who would bless the nations, and he's the one who would reign on David's throne. All of these major covenant promises that are made in the Old Covenant find their fulfillment and realization in Jesus Christ. 
He is the one of whom the prophets foretold. And so Zechariah blesses God in verse 72 for being merciful to his people by remembering his sacred covenant and delivering his people through Christ that they might serve him without fear of their enemies. How? In holiness and righteousness in his presence all their days and forever. Now I want us to think about this in their own setting and then I want us to think about this in our own context. Because do we have enemies? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. We have enemies. And the people of God in the first century had enemies. And those enemies were whom? The Romans. Right? Rome. They were under the oppressive reign and regime of the Roman Empire. And so... Uh, What's being said here uh, in this text is that God will save us from our enemies, from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember His holy covenant. And so there is this rejoicing that this one who is to come is going to deliver us from our enemies. Now, what we're going to consider, of course, is that the greatest enemy we're being delivered from is Satan himself and from the depths of hell is our as our Christmas hymns clearly communicate. But there's this deliverance from the Roman Empire, from the Roman regime, and there's this kind of anticipation of Christ when He comes uh, and becomes human flesh and He accomplishes redemption that one day in the future He will return a second time and will deliver us from all of our enemies. And notice that He says we will be able to serve the Lord without fear and holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. Because we have these promises, because we know we will be delivered ultimately from our enemies, we can serve the Lord without fear. Now, think about our own day. Think about what is happening in our own day, the attack on Christianity. The full-scale attack on humanity. What is a man? What is a woman? What is marriage? What is a family? The attack from the evil one coming from the highest levels of human government attacking humanity, attacking God himself, who of course sits in the heavens and laughs. But what often fills the heart of true Christian believers in an age like our own. It's fear. It's fear. It's fear of being ostracized. It's fear of losing our occupation. It's fear of injury, persecution, death. All of these things are a reality, and we We can live in fear as Christians. We can watch the news. We can see the things happening. We can hear the reports. And we can be filled with fear, which often will do one of two things. It'll either drive us into being grumpy, complaining, self-righteous Christians. I'm glad we never do that. Or it can drive us into a place 
where we are no longer witnesses for Christ, we are silent. We don't want to offend people. Rather than being concerned about their soul for eternity, we're more concerned about hurting their feelings. Think about that now. How crazy that is, that notion. That we're more concerned about hurting someone's feelings or causing offense than we are to sharing with them the good news of the gospel, that there is hope and salvation in Jesus Christ. And so fear is often what fills our hearts when we consider the enemies of the church and the enemies of the gospel. But here's the thing. When Christ comes into the world, we know that he defeats our ultimate enemy, namely Satan. We know that ultimately all of our enemies, those who remain in their rebellion and sin against God and who hate Christ and who hate the church, one day there will be a reckoning that will happen. By the way, a reckoning that we all deserve as well, but we are under God's mercy and grace. We're in Christ. We don't get what we deserve. We've received mercy in Christ. And so we don't look upon these things in a self-righteous way, but we recognize that Christ will and does defeat all of our enemies. And so how can we live in the midst of this crooked generation, dear ones? Look with me at verse 74 that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear. Without fear. We do not live in fear, dear ones. We live by faith. No matter what happens in our culture, no matter what kinds of lies are being told us in the culture, no matter what the news networks are constantly flooding the airways with, which is, sensationalism and fear so that you'll keep watching and keep giving good ratings. I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to be informed. What I'm saying is it's wrong for us to live in fear. Amen? Fear will drive us to be self-righteous, grouchy, cantankerous. There's a word for you. Christians who aren't doing a whole lot of good, quite frankly, or we can be the other kind of not doing a whole lot of good, <clears throat> sort of collapsing into this safe zone where we only want to be around people just like us and we're forgetting about the people who are walking on a pathway to eternal damnation. The same path that we were on at one time and we were rescued from. And so this is a point even I wasn't even planning on, on drilling down on this morning uh, but such an important point from this text, isn't it? That we ought not live in fear. We've been delivered from that because our Savior has come and delivered us from our enemies. And so how do we live? Not in fear, but in holiness and in righteousness before the Lord all our days. And notice with me, again, that Zechariah's praise and faith are not rooted in subjectivity or, or good feelings or emotions. Uh, we live in a very sort of emotion-driven society, don't we? It's all so therapeutic. Our language is even changing in those regards. But Zechariah doesn't put his focus on 
feelings and emotions for his salvation. Rather, it's the substance and truth of God's covenant promises, his objective saving promises fulfilled historically in the person and redemptive work of Christ, the eternal Son of God. And this this focus on the objective truth of God is not always well, well received in our day. We are told that truth is relative. That truth is really a matter of one's own perspective and that it has very little to do with objective reality. In fact, you know, why should it? Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. Well, what if my truth is that I'm your boss and I don't want to pay you? Well, that truth now doesn't seem to be the truth that can be held. There are always lines that must be drawn somewhere in this ridiculous conversation being had in our culture today. You see... Religion isn't focused on subjective feelings. It's focused on objective truth, the truth of God and the gospel, objective saving promises fulfilled in Christ. And here Luke reminds us that 2,000 years ago, God Almighty broke into our world and our reality by enabling the barren and aged Zechariah and Elizabeth to bear a son. And not only that, he sent his blessed eternal son born of a virgin. So Luke, the doctor historian, presents Theophilus at the outset of this gospel this, uh, to this Roman official of, of sorts. He presents to Theophilus and all of us with these facts, not myth, not fairy stories, not merely subjective emotional experiences, but true historical facts so that our faith may be rooted in God's precious promises and the realization of those promises in history, in the person of Christ. Please, please hear this. Real sinners living in a real broken world need a real Savior to shed real blood in order to save real sinners from a real Hell, this is what we need. And so while we listen to all of the sentimental cultural Christmas songs about how everything is perfect at Christmas time, even though we all know that it's not, we still sing them, we, we enjoy them. Our faith is not in that which we wonder about or in our own subjective feelings. No, it's... It's about Christ, because nothing else will do. Nothing else will do. No amount of good intentions or sincere expressions of holding to a personal version of the truth will save a person. Our postmodern age wants spirituality, but not truth. But in John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. This is a truth that we cherish. That's why we cherish our Bibles. We were talking about it in Sunday school. You know, if every one of us in this room decided the Bible wasn't true, the Bible's still true. If everybody in the world decided right now that the Bible's not true, it's still true. It's God's word. And, and it points us to Christ, who is the truth. What the world needs more than anything else and what the church, the church needs more than anything else is this gospel, not a, a more positive approach to life or a sentimentalistic and subjective spirituality, not more baptized entertainment or helpful advice. No, we need the gospel. 
And we don't need a sanitized version of the gospel either. We need the true gospel. Listen to what David Wells says in his book, Above All Earthly Powers. By the way, if you want some good reading for next year, David Wells, Above All Earthly Powers. He says this, quote, The world with all its pleasures, power, and comforts is fading away. The pall of divine judgment hangs over it. A new order has arisen in Christ. And only in this new order can be found meaning, hope, and acceptance with God. It is truth, not private spirituality, that apostolic Christianity was about. It was Christ, not the self, as means of access into the sacred. It was Christ, with all of his painful demands of obedience, not comfortable country clubs, that early Christianity was about. It was what God had done in space and time when the world was stood on its head that was its preoccupation, not the multiplication of programs, strobe lights, and slick drama. Images we may want, entertainment we may desire, but it is the proclamation of Christ crucified that is the church's truth to tell. Amen to that. Amen to that. So let us recognize that in the first part of this hymn or blessing, Zechariah does not focus on his own private spirituality. He rejoices in the reality of what God has promised and what he is about to do and what he's doing in his own life and through his own life in the person of John, who will be, as we will see, the forerunner of this Messiah. And so we rejoice with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now, look with me at verses 76 through 79 as we see the blessing on John. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. I've divided this this, uh, blessing up into two parts, John's call and the substance of John's message. John's call and the substance of John's message. Message. First of all, the nature of John's call. Notice, first of all, it says he will be called the prophet of the Most High. He will be called the prophet of the Most High. In other words, little eight-day-old, this little eight-day-old baby that Zechariah held in his arms was no ordinary child. He was set apart by God for a very special purpose in the history of redemption. He would grow up to be a prophet of Yahweh, the Most High to declare his truth, to declare his judgment, and to declare his gospel promises. But he was also no ordinary prophet. He was, as Jesus would later explain in Matthew 11, verse 11, the greatest of all of the Old Testament prophets. Listen to what Jesus said. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No one greater. Why? Well, we see at the end of verse 76. Look there with me. He will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. 
He's going before the Lord to prepare his ways. He's, he's as we'll see in a minute, preparing a highway. It's like in World War II where the Allied forces would land in certain places and there were no airfields. And so what did they have to do? Make some. Clear the way so that the planes could land and bring the supplies and the soldiers necessary to move and to advance forward. Well, here we notice that Zechariah is pointing to Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 40, 3 through 5, 700 years before the coming of Christ. Here, John is being prophesied of. It says there in Isaiah 40, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall, shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And what happens oftentimes in these Old Testament prophecies, it's, they're like mountain ranges where you'll, you'll, you'll see them in all their beauty. And as you get closer to them, you see that there's a mountain range closer than the other. And there's another one right behind it. And, and, and this is how prophecy is. And so you have sometimes collapsed into it, not only the fulfillment of that prophecy there when John comes, but we see the prophecy when Jesus comes and we see the prophecy when he comes a second time. All flesh shall, shall see it together, it says here. And one day all flesh shall see the Lord together at his, at his return. But here John is this, this prophet who is going before the Messiah's coming and saying, Hear ye, hear ye, the Messiah is coming. Make your heart ready, which is what he did in his preaching ministry, isn't it? So don't miss the drama of this text. Imagine standing with Zechariah and Elizabeth and the other family and neighbors that are there. And Zechariah is pronouncing this blessing upon his son. They're listening. Was Zechariah really saying that the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy was right before their eyes in his very arms? The one who would, through his future preaching ministry, prepare a highway for the public ministry of the eternal Son of God in the flesh? Could the miraculous events that had taken place really mean that God had not forgotten his people and that he intended to visit and to deliver them himself? Zechariah, after a year of silence, declared that his son was the greater Elijah who would, as prophet of the Most High God, prepare the way of the Lord. And let us not miss the fact that he blesses his son on this special day of his circumcision. His chief focus remains upon God and his great redemption through Christ, the horn of salvation. John himself would follow in his father's footsteps, pointing people away from himself to Jesus. In John chapter 3 and verse 30, John the Baptist said these memorable words about Christ. He must increase and I must decrease. 
It's a sentiment that should be held by all preachers and all Christians in general. Well, we've looked at the nature of John's calling. What about the blessing of his son, which delineates the substance of his message? And here we have some of the most glorious gospel-concentrated verses in all of the Bible. Look with me at verses 77 through 79. He writes, To give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins, because the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. What is John's ministry? It's, first of all, to give knowledge. Uh, To give knowledge, proper knowledge. Uh, Knowledge of what? Well, the knowledge or truth that leads to repentance and salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Here we are reminded again about the objective truth of God. We need knowledge. In Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, 3, Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. How can we have an abundant, lively faith in Jesus Christ? How will people know God and exercise true and saving faith in Him? It's through receiving the knowledge of the gospel. That's why we send missionaries. That's why we're sending a summer mission team to Tegucigalpa, Honduras next summer. It's because we need to hear this truth as sinners, in order to believe it. Romans 10, 13 through 17, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How will then they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? How are our neighbors in Mount Pleasant and North Charleston and James Island and John's Island, how are they going to hear without someone telling them, without someone going to them, without preachers that are called and ordained to proclaim this this gospel. And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so we see this true saving faith being constituted of knowledge, of belief, and of commitment. Notice what it says here. To give knowledge of salvation to his people, verse 77, and the forgiveness of their sins. This is what the Lord gives to us by his power. The forgiveness of sins, the tender mercy of God, and his precious light that leads to the way of peace. Look then with me again at verse 77. To give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. We often have heretical views of God knocking about in our heads. We think God is like us sometimes. We fashion him after our own image rather than recognizing that we've been made in his image, stamped with his image, 
with the communicable attributes of God, not with the incommunicable. And one of the incommunicable attributes of God, namely the way that we are not like God, is that God is all of his attributes at one and the same time. God is full of wrath and full of love and full of mercy and full of justice and full of jealousy all at the same time, all the time. The question is, are you in Christ so that you know his mercy? You see here, it says, because of the tender mercy of our God, we have the forgiveness of sins. Sometimes people view God simply as a God of wrath. He's mean, he's angry. Sometimes they look at him as simply a God of love who accepts whatever, wherever, however. But those two views are blasphemous. You see, God is perfectly holy, and that means he has a holy wrath and a holy love. And and do you know where that holy love and holy wrath meet perfectly? At the cross. Christ was born of a virgin, fulfilled all the requirements of the law of God to become that perfect, righteous substitute for us, to pay the debt of our sin and to receive in his person the wrath of God. God sent his son into the world because he loves you. And he crushed his son, his only son, because he loves you. And he poured his wrath out upon him so that he could be the just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus because he loves you. And so love and wrath meet at the cross. If we don't know Christ, if we do not have a personal relationship with him by grace through faith, we only know God's wrath and justice because he is holy. But if you are in Christ by grace through faith, united to him, You are no longer subject to God's wrath, but only to his mercy. And this is what Zechariah is rejoicing in when it comes to the forgiveness of sins and the tender mercy of God. I want to ask you a question this morning. Some of you who may be visiting with us, who may be not familiar with the gospel, have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you received the forgiveness of sins? Do you know Christ personally? Perhaps you're a covenant child. You've grown up in the church your whole life, but you've never made it your own. You've never owned the Lord Jesus Christ as your friend, your Savior, your Lord, the one to whom you bow down. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh God made alive together with him, now listen to this, having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Nailing it to the cross. Have you received this chesed, covenant-keeping, loyal, tender mercy of God in Christ? And have you received this light that comes to those who sit in darkness? Finally, look at verse 78. 
It says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. What we learn from our Bibles is that everyone who is not in Christ is sitting in darkness and in the valley of the shadow of death under God's wrath and curse. But there's been a sunrise in the coming of Christ. I won't ask for a show of hands, but I'm guessing that most in this room have had those nights that you wanted to end. It may have been because you just lost a loved one. It may have been because you were fearful over some event. It may have been because of worry or anxiety. You just wanted the night to end. You were all torn up inside. And then the sun began to come up. That little beam of orange above the horizon. And the sun comes up. And there's that sense of hope an expectation that comes as the sun rises over the horizon. It's beautiful, isn't it? Especially here in the low country. Especially here in the low country. Christ, when he came, was like a sunrise, giving new hope, strength, and comfort and faith to the people of God. Since the fall of Adam, our sin-torn world is full of spiritual darkness, but a new day has dawned. In Christ. I love what Clement of Alexandria said, quote, The Lord has turned all our sunsets into sunrise. That's what the Lord has done. Malachi 4.2, But for you who fear my, my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in His wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Dear one, Christ came in order to give us peace with God, objective peace with God, to remove the hostility, to remove the curse, to remove the wrath, wrath, and to bring us into fellowship with God through the forgiveness of sins, through His saving mercy in the person of His Son. Christmas, the story of Christmas, is to reinforce, to tell us this good news, that we ourselves would believe it by grace through faith and take this news to tell it on the mountain, to share about this sunrise, which is true for everyone in the world. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. This drama of redemption, which we began three weeks ago with the visitation of the angel, uh, is now moving to the birth of Christ. And next Lord's Day morning, Christmas morning, we will turn to Luke chapter 2 and the birth of our Savior. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this glorious narrative. We thank you for all that it teaches us about who you are and who we are and what great needs we have and those needs being met in your Son who was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. Lord, we know why the angels were rejoicing because they knew, they knew the good news. They knew what Christ was coming to do. And so they rejoiced in this great salvation. May we join their voices and rejoice with them. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Well, let us stand and sing together. Good Christian men rejoice, number 308. receive the benediction. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit being abide with you always and all of God's people said, Amen. See you tonight.